welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Every week, decisions are made across Maine that affect the future of our environments. Lawmakers in Augusta propose or debate new bills. Mainers speak up on proposals made by corporations or state agencies. Clean energy projects are launched, or communities take action to address threats to clean air or water or open spaces that they cherish. Since 1959, NRCM has been on the front lines, tracking these developments and tapping into the power of Maine people, science, and the law. NRCM does this to protect and enhance the nature of Maine. So every two weeks, we'll sit down with advocates and experts to discuss some of the most important stories you need to know about and what lies ahead. Thank you for listening as we share our view from the front lines. Hi, I'm Pete Didesheim, NRCM's Advocacy Director, and I'm taking the place of Colin Durant this week as the host. Uh, he's off enjoying some vacation time with his family, which is a great way to spend these early days of August. And I'm just back myself from a week on a lake in Western Maine, which was wonderful. So the legislature recently wrapped up what was a really highly successful session, one of the most productive on environmental issues in decades. And we're now focusing on the next steps associated with those many bills and many other issues are in play. And before we get into the meat of today's program, I did want to just share some breaking news that we just learned that although we had heard that multi-billion dollar out-of-state packaging companies were thinking of pursuing a people's veto to overturn the, uh, the very important first of the nation bill that we passed uh, called EPR for packaging, extended producer responsibility for packaging, which requires the manufacturers of packaging waste to help pay for our recycling programs. We thought that they were gonna pursue a people's veto to try to overturn that law and they um, have missed the deadline to take out papers. So that means that law is um, on the books and we will move ahead with, um, with a really important program. So we're excited about that. So let's move into the heart of our program. With me today are two of NRCM's top policy staff. Jack Shapiro is our climate and clean energy director. And he just started with NRCM in early July. And Melanie Sturm is NRCM's Forests and Wildlife Director. So welcome to you both. Thank and you. Jack, I think I'll jump right in with you. Um, although August can be a slow month, there's never, it's never really seems to be a, a slow month anymore for NRCM. There's a lot going on in your program. Why don't you tell us about one of your big priorities that you're tracking? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Pete. And it's, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, and great to be here on the on the podcast for the first time. I'm, I'm sure it won't be the last. Um, so before I answer your question, just really want to say how happy I am to be joining the team working on climate and energy on, on behalf of all of NRCM's great members and supporters. But as I'm sure your listeners know, Maine has been one of the most active states recently on climate and energy and just concluded a really busy legislative session with a lot of great new progress. Uh, in this area. And many of these bills were designed to help implement our state's climate action plan, Maine Won't Wait, uh, which lays out strategies to meet uh, Maine's greenhouse gas reduction goals, which, which are some of the most ambitious targets laid out in, in statute in the country. So with all of that said, one of the major pieces that we're working on as part of all that is, is transportation. 
In Maine, 54% of our climate emissions come from transportation. It's the biggest single sector uh, source, more than electricity, more than buildings. Uh, it's, it's really big. Now, later this week, the Mills administration is launching a process to develop a clean transportation roadmap, which is intended to identify specific policies to help reach the goals laid out in the climate action plan. Uh, including speeding up the transition to electric vehicles. Now, we know that electrifying transportation is cleaner uh, from a climate perspective, and it's better from a health perspective. You know, lots of other pollution besides greenhouse gases comes out of uh, tailpipes of cars and trucks. But an additional big benefit is that it is straight up cheaper in the long term. Electric vehicles have lower fuel costs, they have lower operating costs, and this could really save money for Mainers. Um, and the upfront costs of, of a lot of these vehicles are getting lower all the time. But there are some real challenges in helping this transition along. Um, we wanna make sure that uh, electric vehicle infrastructure isn't just put in coastal areas and in big population centers. You know, We really need to make sure that rural communities and low income Mainers all across the state aren't left out of the benefits of this transition. And we also need to make sure the clean transportation roadmap uh, focuses beyond just uh, electric vehicles. We need transportation solutions also that reduce vehicle miles traveled. That's sort of the standard word for it. Um, and what that means is convenient and affordable alternatives to cars. Um, that includes transit, better bike paths, uh, even ensuring that high-speed broadband is available uh, all across the state. These, these are all part of the solutions that are going to enable Mainers to reduce driving um, uh, through remote work and, and, and those other alternatives. So transportation is a, is a really big deal. Um, this process is a big deal, and we're going to spend a lot of time tracking and providing input into the development of, uh, of this roadmap. Um, which is going to involve modeling, surveys, stakeholder input, um, and and probably will result in some proposals for new legislation in the uh, in the session that will start in January. Yeah, and I understand that this is on a pretty fast track. So the it's being launched this week, and they need to wrap it up with a a plan by December. So this is going to take a lot of intense work moving ahead, and obviously reducing fossil fuels in cars and trucks is key here in Maine. Uh, trucks is, a, is a, an important focus, as we've discussed previously on this podcast. The Ford 150 EV, which is arriving next year, could be a, a game changer for, for uh, rural states like this, where, where a lot of people need trucks. So that's, that's going to be an exciting thing. The next few years is going to be really big for new electric vehicle models. But let's shift to where the electricity is coming from. What's on your radar screen for this month in terms of power generation? Because it's not enough just to get fossil fuels out of cars and trucks. We also need to make sure that the electricity we're generating is clean. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And as we as we electrify, you know, to meet our, our climate goals, we're going to need to switch transportation to electricity. We're going to need to switch um, the 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 heating and, and cooling in our buildings to to electricity. And that means we're going to need clean power and lots of it. Um, and one of the big long-term projects that is really getting going right now here in Maine, um, and really all, all down the East Coast, uh, is offshore wind. So when you look at wind speeds and wind consistency, the waters off the coast of Maine represent one of the best potential renewable resources for generating energy in the entire world. 
unlike in Europe, where offshore wind power has, has already taken off, or in states to our south, uh, Virginia, New Jersey, other, other places where projects are being developed, here in Maine, the, uh, the turbines are going to need to be on floating platforms in, in the deeper water that we have here, rather than anchored directly to the seafloor. Um, so there are two projects currently being worked on here in Maine. The first is a single turbine uh, technology test project uh, that's planned for near Monhegan Island. And the second is a research array uh, planned for about 30 miles off the coast. Um, this legislative session, there was significant activity around offshore wind uh, related to these projects. Um, first, the legislature established a moratorium on wind development uh, close to shore in state waters. Uh, it also directed the uh, Public Utilities Commission to develop a contract for purchasing the energy from the research array, which is a, a key step there. Um, and that research array will be in federal waters much further offshore. And it also established an offshore wind research consortium to help identify uh, research priorities for the research array. Um, it's, there are a lot of, lot of questions about how exactly uh, offshore wind, what exactly the impacts are gonna be. And we really need to make sure we get those, uh, get those questions answered. So a few weeks ago, the governor's energy office launched uh, another roadmap process, the main offshore wind roadmap process, uh, which is gonna run through next year, 2022, uh, pulling in all kinds of stakeholder input uh, to ensure that uh, this wind development happens and it happens responsibly here in Maine. So we, we really have to make sure that we get this, this right. Uh, and that is why that we are going to be uh, deeply involved in this process. Uh, offshore wind is a really critical piece of our climate solution. And there's, there's really no question about that. Um, the Gulf of Maine is already warming faster than nearly any other body of water in the world. Uh, that has drastic implications for, for fisheries, for wildlife, the, the jobs that depend on them, the communities that depend on them. Um, but we believe that we can take advantage of this truly enormous clean energy source in a way that minimizes impacts to wildlife uh, and to people that already use the Gulf of Maine's resources, uh, but also provides economic benefits and jobs in, in coastal communities and provides this huge chunk of pollution-free power that we need to slow climate change. So uh, over the course of this month, um, we're digging deeper into the uh, work that needs to be done as, as, part of, uh, uh, as part of that offshore wind roadmap. That's great. And I know it's involving a lot of people, a lot of in the science community, in the fishing community, obviously coastal communities, many businesses that stand to potentially get uh, substantial job and economic growth opportunities. So that's big, that's important. Uh, so the state's developing a clean transportation roadmap and an offshore wind roadmap. Uh, obviously maps are good, we need maps, uh, particularly when we're trying to get to a new destination for our entire society of transitioning away from fossil fuels to clean energy. So how about mentioning one more top priority before we shift over to Melanie to hear what's on her radar screen? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this last one is, is a, a really a direct outgrowth of the last legislative session. Um, when lawmakers passed a bill that requires Maine's Public Utilities Commission to help meet the state's climate targets. Um, now that might not sound like a big deal, but it's a really big deal. Um, Maine is one of the uh, uh, few states that have adopted this, uh, uh, this common sense language. Um, you know, in the past, 
public utilities commissions were sort of only responsible for uh, for a really narrow uh, really narrow requirements around affordability and reliability. Um, but with the role that the electricity system is going to play in our climate transition, um, this is a, a, a really a big keystone um, for us going forward. Um, and it's going to come into play in a whole range of uh, issues that we're tracking at the PUC. Um, one is uh, connecting solar projects with, uh, with the grid. Now, state policy over the past few years has successfully uh, uh, fostered a boom in solar installations, but CMP, the biggest utility in the state, uh, has not kept up with their core responsibility of getting all this new clean energy connected to the grid. Um, so the PUC is conducting an investigation into this, uh, and we need to make sure they hold CMP accountable for, for fixing it. Um, we, can't clean, uh, we, we can't make this clean energy transition if, if new solar installations can't connect to the grid, uh, or if CMP is, is overcharging developers by millions of dollars to, to do so. Uh, another is uh, time of use pricing, um, which, uh, which the PUC ha has just opened a, a, a proceeding uh, for. Um, our power system is built uh, to handle the maximum demands put on, um, you know, just to step back a little bit. It, it's built to handle this peak load, which, which makes sense. You don't want the grid going down when people are using it the most. Uh, but that means that most of the time, the grid's capacity is not being fully utilized. So when we add these new electric loads, um, like charging an electric vehicle, uh, for example, that, that is, is really important. Um, so having power pricing that could provide lower rates for using power at night, for example, um, to charge a vehicle or run your dishwasher or your dryer, um, that could be really good for, for people's wallets and, and good for the system at the, uh, at the same time. Um, the last two I'll mention just real quickly are, are performance metrics and grid modernization. You know, this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but in the past, uh, 100 years ago, when the power grid was first being built out, Utilities made money by building power plants and substations and charging the costs plus profits to ratepayers. And back then, energy only traveled one way. It came from power plants and got sent to end users. Uh, but we are entering a new world where everyday people can and do and will have solar panels and home batteries in their, in their homes and their businesses. Um, maybe one of those uh, electric Ford F-150s uh, plugged in. Um, and, and as we look ahead, we're going to just need to have a lot of different data, different technology um, and coordination to make sure we can have all of these resources working together. Um, so that might include both incentives uh, and penalties uh, for the utilities to ensure they're, they're better aligned with, uh, with our climate goals. So we're going to be watching all these processes really, really closely with an eye to seeing whether the PUC uses its new authority and mandate. Um, uh, and ensuring that it, that it does to help the state achieve um, our uh, greenhouse gas reduction goals. That's really great, Jack. Those are interesting. They all fit together. They're important. And I'm glad you're, you and many others are going to be following those three processes very closely. So let's shift to Melanie. Um, and again, Melanie is our uh, Forest and Wildlife Director. So what are you focused on this month now that the legislature has wrapped up its work, including passage of of a new funding, um, a new uh, pot of funding for the Land for Maine's Future program, which I know has been one of your top priorities. Why don't you just kind of, let's just jump right in there on, on Land for Maine's Future. 
Yes, huge news for Land for Maine's future. The program was included in the state budget and will get $40 million over four years to fund new projects. Our listeners no doubt know that LMF is Maine's most popular and effective land conservation program. And since its creation in 1987, it's helped conserve places like Mount Kineo, a striking landscape feature in the middle of Moosehead Lake. You wouldn't miss it if you visited. Uh, the stunning Cutler Bold Coast in Down East, where I was earlier this summer. Bethel Community Forest, a relatively new project that supports tons of recreation in that area. Um, Mount Agamenticus, a popular peak in southern Maine. A fisherman co-op in Vinyl Haven and Bumble Root Organic Farm, for example, in Wyndham, among hundreds more. Until this year, LMF hadn't gotten new funding since 2012, so nearly a decade. So it was really a big deal that on July 1st, Governor Mills signed the two-year appropriations bill, which included that $40 million. And $10 million will be made, was already made available immediately to the program. Uh, and though the LMF board won't be issuing a request for proposals this month, it's certainly on the horizon and we'll be tracking it closely. Yeah, this really is a big deal to have it right in the budget, uh, even though it most of the, the previous occasions when LMF has received funding has been through a bond and those bonds have always passed by very substantial margins, 60% or more of the public supporting these bonds. It's great to have it right there in the budget. And NRCM was working with a broad coalition, uh, land, uh, the uh, land bond coalition to achieve this much needed victory. Um, so that's really exciting. Um, what else can you tell us that's exciting in your project area? Uh, well, I'd be remiss without mentioning um, on the land conservation funding front that um, there were many people who worked for years to achieve this important victory for Maine's land, waters, wildlife, and communities. So um, a particular shout out to Senator Kathy Breen and Representative Patrick Corey uh, who have been tireless champions for LMF in the legislature. And um, Maine State Parks also will be getting a big new investment in funding, 50 million for much needed maintenance projects. Uh, these funds were allocated as part of Governor Mills's plan for spending the federal stimulus money Maine received through the American Rescue Plan Act. And the money comes at a critical time as our state parks are experience, experiencing record-breaking visitation numbers. We're really happy about both of those investments, LMF and Maine State Parks. And uh, everyone should celebrate by visiting an LMF site or state park. So speaking of celebrating, I know that um, the Katahdin Woods and Waters is um, approaching an important anniversary milestone. So why don't we, why don't we shift into that and uh, hear what's uh, what's important in terms of Katahdin Woods and Waters. Sure. It may be hard to believe, but KWW uh, will be turning five years old this month. The monument, as Mainers know, was made possible by an incredibly generous donation from the Quimby family and was established as a national monument by President Obama on August 24, 2016. Since then, visitation numbers have been going up steadily with 41,000 visitors last year. Recent numbers from a National Park Service report show that the monument has contributed significantly and positively to businesses in the Katahdin region as well. That is really exciting. NRCM spent a lot of time 
five years, and I know that some of our staff, we added it up, spent like 10,000 hours of outreach to those communities, building support, working with the, the communities in support of KWW. So that's pretty exciting. Um, I know that there's been some other big news in, in connection with the monument recently. Why don't you share some of that? Sure. Exciting stuff has been happening. Um, last year, the monument was named an International Dark Sky Sanctuary, the first on the U.S. East Coast, and the National Park Service just announced they've added seven new tent sites on the east branch of the Penobscot River. It's really beautiful right there, which is all very cool news. And the Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters is hosting a fifth anniversary celebration at Shin Pond Village in Mount Chase on August 20th and 21st. That's a Friday and Saturday. So check out the Friends Group's website if you're interested in attending. Cool. Okay, so let's let's shift to the um, Moosehead region planning process. I know that, um, and many people listening are very aware of the of the drawn out process that Plum Creek, um, a real estate investment trust, pursued uh, 15 years ago to rezone uh, for development a very large area around Moosehead Lake, and um, but some developments have happened and. So now they're moving into a, into a planning process for the region, which is great. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? That's right. NRCM is closely tracking the Moosehead region planning project led by the Land Use Planning Commission or the LAPC. Um, NRCM, as you noted, Pete, has a long history of involvement in protecting the unique character of Maine's Northwoods in general and the Moosehead Lake region in particular. This is a special landscape to Maine people and visitors through the current planning process, which began last year, LEPC staff are collecting community and stakeholder input to determine how to potentially rezone the nearly 17,000 acres in the Moosehead Lake region that were slated for development under the old concept plan from the 2000s, which has since been terminated. Right, so uh, Plum Creek was subsumed by Weyerhaeuser and then Weyerhaeuser, um, uh, requested, petitioned to the Land Use Planning Commission to terminate their lake concept plan. Uh, that was approved and that's what has created this pathway for the communities of the area to provide input into a planning process. So just give us a little bit more detail um, about why people should care about this process. Sure, well, it is a public process, so there are opportunities to engage in the planning, including this fall. Um, listeners should look, look out for a couple of public meetings and um, public comment opportunities, which will influence what the region looks like for years to come. Um, I think it's important for people to understand that Moosehead Lake is surrounded by millions of acres of forest land. Large, nearly contiguous tracts of forest are difficult to find anywhere else east of the Mississippi here in the U.S. That's partly that partly explains why uh, there was just a pitched battle over the Plum Creek proposal, as you described, which was the largest development proposal in Maine history. And it's also why Mainers continue continue to be concerned about development pressures in Maine's ten and a half million acres of unorganized territories. Yeah, many of us spent years of our life um, battling against Plum Creek. And Plum Creek, when they arrived here and they bought a million acres of forest land from Sappy in 1998, they said that they would, 
they would not be developing. They had no interest in, in developing uh, that land. They were just going to focus on, on forestry. But they quickly moved through a uh, highest best use analysis, and they announced the largest development plan in Maine history. And they were very aggressive in trying to uh, rezone um, land around remote ponds uh, that would have caused massive disruption and fragmentation in that area. They were known out west when we first learned about them as the Darth Vader of the Pacific Northwest in terms of their development patterns. So we fought long and hard. Um, we, uh, we successfully got them to uh, resubmit uh, their plan multiple times. And we had, a con we had our own vision for the area. And it's looking like we're moving closer and closer to what we proposed, which is development should stay very close to existing communities and not be sprinkled across the landscape. So uh, this all seems to be moving in a good direction with a very substantial amount of conservation that has come out of the process. So we're excited about this. Um, what else do you want to say about, the, about this particular Plum Creek and Moosehead region? process? Sure. Um, well, the current regional planning process led by the LUPC is a chance, like I said, for the public to get involved. Um, and it's also a chance for staff at the LUPC to designate zoning that reflects the long-term interests of those who live in the area and recreate. Um, it's all about balancing economic development with protection of the natural character of the region. That balances especially important to plan for given the heightened real estate interest throughout Maine that doesn't seem to be abating. And that, that really is at the core of what NRCM and so many conservation organizations are trying to achieve, which is how do we continue to have sustainable economic growth in this state without wrecking the place? And it's about protecting the character of special places like Moosehead and it even relates to the work we're doing on climate and clean energy. How do we move forward with a clean economy that um, is, uh, is sustainable? So, so there you have it. That's the latest news on Maine's environment. Colin Durant will be back as our host in two weeks. Um, this week, I'm heading out to Montana to do some backpacking, but I will be back for the next podcast. In ten, until then, uh, be sure to visit nrcm.org or sign up for our email action alerts to get the latest news on what's happening in between our podcasts. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Twitter, or Instagram at NRCM Environment. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to Maine Environment Frontline Voices. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to our podcast or leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast listening apps. To learn more about NRCM, please visit nrcm.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at NRCM Environment. Until next time, thanks for your interest, attention, and involvement in the collective efforts by Maine people to protect the unique woods, waters, and wildlife of our state. Thanks again.